Well, the year is 1944. Adolf Hitler continues churning his destructive machine through Europe, killing, destroying, or capturing anything and anyone. Millions are murdered in his wake. Hundreds of thousands are confined to death camps awaiting execution. The Allies are doing everything possible to frustrate his attempts to conquer the world, placing it under Nazi rule. In March of that same year, Germany occupies Hungary and the Holocaust spreads into northern Transylvania. A young man by the name of Elie Wiesel, he's 15 years old, and he, with his family, along with the rest of the town's Jewish population, they're all placed in one of two confinement ghettos set up in the same town in which Ellie was born and raised. Two months later, May of 1944, the Hungarian authorities under German pressure began to deport the Jewish community to the Auschwitz concentration camp, where up to 90% of the people were killed upon arrival. Immediately after they were sent to Auschwitz, Wiesel's mother and his younger sister were murdered. Ellie and his father were selected to perform labor so long as they remained able-bodied, after which both of them were to be killed in a gas chamber. He and his father were later deported to concentration camp of Buchenwald. This is where it is. This was actually the week that the concentration camp was actually liberated. And you can see Ellie right there. That's a picture of him as he is still in the camp awaiting deliverance. In his unforgettable memoir, Night, Ellie describes the shame he felt when he discovered his father had been beaten and he could not do anything about it. Ellie Wiesel, 15 years old, entered the Holocaust as a young man of Jewish faith. But after the murder of his family, the brutality of the Nazis, and what to him appeared to be the silence of God in the middle of hell itself, he exited the Holocaust as an atheist. He could not reconcile his faith with the pain, suffering, murder, unanswered prayers, and apparent stillness of God. In his memoir, Nights, he writes these haunting words. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke, never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been addressing questions you've submitted. Week one, Preston joined me on the platform. Last week, Josh joined me on the platform. Today, I am alone. 
because I want to address possibly the most difficult questions that were submitted a little differently than the other two weeks. The other two weeks, we did it through a conversation. Uh, today, I want to do it by just going deeper into these questions and being able to present it more as a message to you. Here are four questions, asked a little differently, but seeking the same answer. And I'm going to kind of wrap all four questions into one large question. So here's, here's the four questions as presented. How do you handle craving an intimate relationship with God, all the while being angry with him for the outcome of certain situations? Another question. Jesus asked and you will receive. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. And if your child asks for bread, you wouldn't give him a serpent. Yet what I pray doesn't happen. Sometimes I get the opposite of what I ask. Why? Here's another one. How can you be happy for your friends who are getting everything you have prayed to happen to you? And the last one, why does God take people from us? These are tough questions. I mean, they are emotionally challenging questions because I know behind these questions lies pain, hurt, confusion. In fact, I don't know who asked the questions, but if we could put the people in front of us who asked these questions and I would say to them, hey, tell me a little bit more about why you asked that question. What's going on in your life that provoked that question? We would hear confusion. We would hear uh, hurt. We would hear unanswered prayers. We would hear silence. We would hear lots of things that create turmoil within them. When I read these questions, one word rises to the surface for me, and that is disappointment, a wondering about why God does what he does, each person waiting for God to explain himself, to make sense, to give an account of his actions or indifference. When I read these questions, I feel pain. I feel perplexity rising from the people who ask them, intellectual and emotional disturbance. I sense honesty, transparency, but I also sense disillusionment. So let's slowly step into the water this morning and wade a little deeper into these questions. And here's, here's how I'm going to do it, okay? I'm going to do it kind of in a story-like form. I'm going to tell you some stories in a moment. I'll get to that in just a second, how that's going to work. And you're going to be able to pick out, at least I hope you do, pick out some truth and principles from these stories. Now, the people asking these questions assume God is behind the scenes pulling strings, that he is in control of everything happening and nothing happens without his express permission. They imagine God preferring some people over others. That's why they see it as, why is it some people get things that I've prayed for? Why do they get it? I don't. They see God as preferentially selecting people. They conclude that life is unfair because God is unfair. Because if God were fair, then he would have, we would have what we prayed for. Things would be a whole lot better. People would be healed, sufferings would cease, hunger and famine would vanish, on and on. If God were attentive to our needs, then life would be beautiful. And I want you to hear me very clearly. From where we are standing, those conclusions make perfect sense. From where we are standing, I get it, I see it, I understand it, I track with you. But our challenge is we are unable to clearly see from where we are standing. 
Our vantage point is quite limited. We cannot see the entire picture. Our knowledge at best is very small, very limited. We are like a character in a story attempting to guess what happens next by how the story and how the story ends based on our page. We're just, we're in the novel, we're on one page of the novel, and yet we're trying to figure out what's gonna happen next and what's gonna happen by the end of the story, but yet we're only on one page. So we're very limited with our perspective of everything. We are like a person looking at one puzzle piece out of 10,000 pieces, trying to figure out the picture and where this one puzzle piece goes. So we look at the puzzle piece and we say, oh, I think I know what that picture is. We draw conclusions and we're way off. That is not at all what the picture is. We simply do not have enough information. We aren't high enough to take in all of history. We draw conclusions without knowledge. But, but, very important. God allows us every now and then to see behind the scenes. If we pay attention, God carries us high enough to gain a better perspective of what's going on. If we're perceptive and we train our ears to listen and our eyes to see, we get a chance to peer into higher dimensions. He allows us to see a little bit more about what's happening behind the scenes. It's almost as if he lifts the curtain and we can see backstage. It's almost as if he turns the lights on and we're able to see a room that has been dark to us for a long time. It's as if he allows us to get a glimpse of what's going on in other dimensions. And then he closes the curtain, the window shuts, the lights go off, and then we've got to go back to life. But this time we go back to life with new insight, a new perspective, a fresh way of seeing and interpreting and defining ourselves and life and God. So over the next few minutes, here's what I want to do. I want to provide a brief glimpse into a few new dimensions, if you will. And here's how I'm going to do it. We're going to look at three stories. One story out of the Old Testament, two stories out of the New Testament. I'm going to spend most of my time on the story out of the Old Testament, briefly cover the two out of the New Testament, and hopefully you'll be able to draw some conclusions. I'm not going to give you step one, step two, step three. I'm not going to say A, B, C. I'm not going to say, here's the answer, here's the answer, here's the answer. That's way too simple, way too childish. You need to be able to think deeper and process the truth from these stories. That's what we're going to do, okay? Story number one, the story of Job. The story begins like this. A powerful, prosperous, and godly man named Job is minding his own business. He's taking care of his family. He's doing what he needs to survive when all of a sudden a strange set of circumstances occur resulting in Job losing everything. Job is left in utter despair, grieving the destruction of everything he once held dear. Job's pain is amplified because he has been faithful. He's been an upstanding man in his community. He's been obedient to his God. He has led his family well. He's cared for his kids. He's uh, faithfully worshiped God and taught his children to worship God. And he doesn't understand why he's suffering so much. He's confused. Now at this time, this is very important for you to understand this. At this time, people believed, believed in what is called retribution theology. 
That means that if evil and sickness happen to someone, it's because they sinned. It's retribution on their sin. If, you, if you, you did something somewhere to tick God off or to tick the gods up there off and you're being punished or you're being judged and you're bringing bad karma upon yourself. Well, Job believed this. It's why he offered sacrifices every day to cover the gaps, if you will. He tried to live his life good, but hey, who knows? Maybe I did something else that I shouldn't have done. So he offered sacrifices every day uh, to cover himself, to cover his kids, to ensure that everybody in his family were forgiven. That way he wouldn't have bad things happen to him. But he lives his life good and bad things happen to him. And he's confused. He doesn't understand why all these things are happening. Well, eventually, several of Job's friends arrive on the scene, and they attempt to solve the mystery for Job, and they begin to tell him things that he's doing wrong, and how he's sinning, and how he's bringing these bad things upon himself, and most of the book of Job is a back-and-forth conversation between Job's friends trying to convince Job he's guilty, and Job trying to convince his friends that he's innocent, and he doesn't understand why God is doing this to him. Now, remarkably, God is mostly silent in the book of Job. Just like he is in your life, just like he is in my life. You, you pray, you beg, you plead, you ask, and sometimes you hear nothing. It's complete silence, and you don't understand why. That's Job. He doesn't understand why. He's waiting for God to appear. He's waiting for God to say something, and it seems as if silence is the only thing he gets. But... After 37 chapters of accusations and confusion and blaming and weeping and praying, God finally breaks the silence. God lifts the veil. He raises the curtain. He opens the window. He clears the haze. And he provides Job a glimpse of what's been going on behind the scenes long before Job drew his first breath. Here's what God says to Job in chapter 38. So we're skipping all the way to chapter 38. This has been complaining and accusations and conversations all through the book. And finally, God breaks the silence. And this is what happens. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this darkening counsel with words lacking knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man, Job. I will interrogate you and you will respond to me. And then from that point on, God begins to ask Job a series of questions. He says to Job, let me just read you just a little bit of what God says to Job. He says to Job, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you know. Who sets its measurement? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring tape on it? On what were its footings sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang in unison and all the divine beings shouted, who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment, the dense clouds its wrap, when I imposed my limit for it, put on a bar and doors and said, you may come this far, no farther. Here, your proud waves stop. In a poetic fashion, God blows Job's mind. He begins to tell him things he's never considered, never thought of, opens his mind, opens his heart. 
all the way through the end of 38, all the way through the end of 39, all the way through chapter 40, all the way to the end of chapter 41. I mean, this is chapter after chapter, question after question, interrogation after interrogation. I mean, I wonder how Job felt. How would you feel if God questioned you? How would you feel if he laid out the secrets of the universe in front of you and said, do you know all these things? And you would have to say, I have no clue what I'm talking about. I wonder how he felt. Well, we know a little bit about how Job felt because chapter 42 opens up with Job's response when God was finished. Here's what Job says in chapter 42. God, I I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? That's me, God, without knowledge. I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand, wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will inform me. Notice this line. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent. Another word for that is repent. I repent and find comfort on dust and ashes. When Job's eyes were opened, he realized he had spoken about things he didn't understand. He had judged God from an ignorant position, and he had assumed things that were not true. Before Job's pain and suffering and disappointment and confusion, he knew God by way of hearing. After God confronts him, he knew God by way of experience. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. Word of mouth and firsthand experience are completely different. Look at something with me. This this really hit hard this past week as I was putting this together. I want you to listen to how Job is introduced to us in the first chapter. So we're going now back to the very first chapter. I just want to show you this, and then we're going to move on. Notice how Job is introduced to us in chapter 1. It opens this way. A man in the name of Uz was named Job. That man was honest, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a vast number of servants so that he was greater than all the people of the East. Each of his sons hosted a feast in his own house on his birthday. They invited their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had been completed, Job would send word and purify his children. Getting up early in the morning, he prepared entirely burnt offerings for each one of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and then cursed God in their hearts. Job did this regularly. Now listen, Job was a man of integrity, honor, consistency. He prayed for his kids daily. He repented all of the time. He was sacrificial, generous, and abundantly prosperous, and yet he lacked a deep knowledge of God. He still was confused about how life worked. He still didn't understand how God worked behind the scenes. He still didn't get the depths of God. Here's the point, and then I gotta move on to story number two. God is bigger and more complex 
and more mysterious than we can possibly imagine. And there are things going on behind the scenes neither you nor I can comprehend. Say, well, Scott, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why doesn't God do what I need him to do when I need him to do it? I don't know. But I do know this. If you will take your pain and your confusion and your unanswered prayers to God and you will lay them before him, confront him, if you will, and wait, he will answer you and he will expand your mind and he will teach you things you never knew and nothing will look the same afterward. Here's what Job thought he knew. I am good, I deserve blessings, but I'm suffering. God is doing this to me and he refuses to answer my prayers. Life is unfair because God is unfair. This is what God had to reveal to Job. I am bigger and more complex and more mysterious than you can ever imagine. You still have so much to learn. Story number two, Paul. If you are familiar with the New Testament, then you know the influence of Paul the Apostle, right? Arguably the greatest person of faith and the most influential Christian to have ever lived responsible for nearly 50% of the New Testament writings. Great power, astonishing intellect, steel backbone, apostle, church planner, missionary, mentor. Eventually, he's martyred for his faith. With all of that in mind, I want you to see what he says about himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my body because of the outstanding revelations I've received so that I wouldn't be conceited. It's a messenger from Satan sent to torment me so that I wouldn't be conceited. I pleaded with the Lord three times, which means over and over and over again, I pleaded with him three times for it, whatever it is, it to leave me alone. Now, I don't know what Paul's thorn was. Some people believe it was eye problems. Some people believe it was depression. Some people believe it was false teachers that followed him around constantly stirring up trouble and perverting his message and he was having to go back and correct and correct and correct. I don't know. But we do know this. Paul considered it a thorn, so it was painful. It was in his body, so it was in the physical world. It bothered him greatly, enough that he wrote about it. And he wanted freedom because he prayed again and again and again. Now, some of you sitting in this room know exactly how Paul felt because you've got that in your life. But for reasons that we cannot understand, God refused to remove it. And here's eventually how God answered Paul. Paul says, God said to me, my grace is enough. Paul, I am not going to take that thorn from your flesh. I am not going to answer what it is you want me to do. I'm not going to do it. Here's what I do. Here's what I will help you with. My grace is enough. And the sense is every day, every day, every day, I will give you the grace for that day. You will make it through one day at a time. 
Paul says, he said to me, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So here's how Paul perceived his thorn after God gave him a look behind the scenes at what was going on. Paul says, so I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore, I'm all right with weaknesses, insults, disasters, harassments, and stressful situations for the sake of Christ because when I am weak, then I am strong. So what if, rather than God taking away that painful situation in your life, he changes how you see that painful situation in your life? What if God changes your mind and doesn't necessarily heal your body. As we see things differently, we experience all of life differently. There are things in my life that if we could go back in time, I would have changed them in that moment. But I look back today, and I'm so glad that I went through it. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But I wouldn't be the person I am, and I wouldn't be able to do what I do had I not gone through what I went through. So rather than God rescuing me from the pain, he changed how I perceived the pain. Big difference. So Scott, why doesn't God make things easier for me? Why, why do other people have it good and I struggle? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. Everything you need for today, he has. And if you will follow him, he will lead you into areas that will break your pride, will break your strength, will break your abilities, your self-dependence, not to harm you, but to lead you into depths in him that you never thought were possible. Here's what Paul thought. Paul thought, I'm in pain. I have a thorn. I need the thorn removed. My prayers are not being answered. God isn't doing what I'm asking, so I must pray more. Here's what God had to reveal to Paul. There is purpose behind your pain. My grace is enough. I'll provide everything you need. Third story, John. John the beloved, known as the disciple Jesus loved, he lives his life for Jesus. He is present for miracles, water walking, bread multiplying, Lazarus raising. He's present for everything. He sees it up close. He hears every message Jesus taught and enjoyed personal conversations with Jesus away from the crowds. He eventually watches Jesus die a horrendous death by crucifixion, followed by Peter's crucifixion, Paul's beheading, James's murder with a sword, and the death of the other original disciples who followed Jesus. So Paul and John has lived a long life and he's seen a lot of pain. John does what Jesus instructed John to do before Jesus died. He goes back and takes care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He becomes a witness to the persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he himself is banished to the Isle of Patmos for preaching and proclaiming the message of Christ and he wouldn't stop when they told him to, so they banished him to an island to die alone. So from John's perspective, everything he had loved, cared for, gave himself to, fought for, was virtually gone. 
It was either burned, martyred, or destroyed. He is now alone on an island, banished from society, and assumes he will die soon. So with all that as a backdrop, while John is on the island, something happens. Revelation 1, 9 through 11. I, John, your brother, who shares with you in hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches. And John begins to pen, and we have the letters to the seven churches. Now skip ahead to chapter 7 of Revelation and listen to what God says to John that changes his entire perspective of everything. After this, I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell face down before the throne worshiping God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders said to me, talking to John, who are these people wearing white robes and where did these people come from? And John says to the elder, you know, sir, I don't. And then the elder says to me, John, these people who are worshiping before the throne have come out of great hardship. They have washed their robes and made them white in the lamb's blood. This is the reason they are before God's throne. They worship him day and night in his temple and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. Now I said all of that to get to this part right here. And this is the promise of God to John. They won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them because the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Scott, why doesn't God heal? Why doesn't he do what I need him to do now? I don't know, but I do know this. This life is not all there is. And one day, everything you've lost will be restored to you plus some. One day, you will look back on this life and you will say, it was worth it. The light afflictions that I went through were nothing compared to what I have now. One day, every tear will be wiped away. Every scar healed, every wound taken care of, everything you've lost returned. And it will make sense then. Here's what John thought he knew. 
Every person I've loved like family is dead. Jerusalem is destroyed. Persecution is growing. Pain is everywhere. The church is struggling. My death is near. Where are you, Lord Jesus? Will you right the wrongs? Do you hear our prayers? What God revealed to John. I will restore everything you lost, not only what you lost, John, but everything, every person from every tribe and every tongue from every part of the planet has lost. I will restore everything and wipe away every tear. That includes you. That includes me. Ellie Wiesel. I started out the message with him at 15. In the Buchenwald concentration camp, family murdered. He leaves the camp as an atheist. He writes the memoir, Night, talking about his faith, gone. This is Elia, old man. After his release from Buchenwald, he became a prolific writer. He authored 57 books became the professor of humanities at Boston University, became a political activist, won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. He's described as the most important Jew in America in 2003 by the Los Angeles Times, founding member of the New York Human Rights Foundation. I mean, his accolades go on and on and on. A few years before Ellie passed, he wrote a column for the New York Times. After all the suffering he had experienced and the distance his suffering created between him and God, he decided that it was time to make up with God because he could no longer live without this relationship. I wonder, I wonder what God revealed to Ellie during those 50 years from the time he came out of the concentration camp until the time that he wrote this article for the New York Times. The article is much longer than I can give you. Much more things were said. Here's just a little bit, just a little taste of what Ellie writes in this article. As an old man, just a few years before he dies, he writes, Auschwitz must end, must and forever remain a question mark only. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a question mark. I can't explain it all. It's probably always going to be a question mark in my mind. It can be conceived neither with God nor without God. At one point, I began wondering whether I was not unfair with you. He's writing this, this, this article to God, if you will. After all, Auschwitz was not something that came down ready-made from heaven. It was conceived by men, implemented by men, staffed by men. And their aim was to destroy not only us, but you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too, God? Watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children, haven't you also suffered? As we Jews now enter the high holidays again, he was writing this around the Christmas season, Hanukkah, all the different things. Preparing ourselves to pray for a year of peace and happiness for our people and all people. Let us make up. Master of the universe. In spite of everything that happened, yes, in spite. Let us make up for the child in me 
It is unbearable to be divorced from you so long. Let's pray. Father, these questions sting when we ask them. They sting because behind the prayers are so much pain. Why do you not do this, God? Why do you allow this, God? Why am I going through what I'm going through, God? After my trying to live a good life, like Job, I wonder why we go through what we go through. Like Paul, some of us have these thorns in our flesh that constantly aggravate and constantly reduce us to weakness. Like John, we look around and see devastation and wonder why it is that all this is happening and where are you and when are you going to answer our prayers? Like Ellie, we go through intense pain and sometimes we come out the other side wondering if you're even there. But Father, you revealed things to Job that changed his perspective. You revealed things to Paul that changed his perspective. You revealed things to John that changed his perspective. And you revealed things to Ellie that changed his perspective. God, would you do that for us? Would you open our hearts and our minds and change where we see and how we see and where we place blame and teach us to rejoice in the middle of pain? Help us to realize that you are bigger and more complex and more beautiful than we can comprehend. Help us to realize that sometimes it's not that the pain needs to be removed, it's that our mind needs to be changed and realize that one day you will restore all things. And let that increase faith in us and let it bring us to a place of worship and adoration, no matter what's going on in our life. Teach us to grow up, to mature, and to process life as men and women who have matured and grown in our faith and see everything different because you have revealed truth to us. Speak into us, speak through us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up by returning to a conversation between myself and Kaylee Bynum. She's going to be here. Kaylee is a mental health therapist. She's the owner of Peaceful Waters Counseling and Wellness Center in Moyoc, good friend. And she's going to be at the Hope Conference as well. She's going to be here next week. And we're going to focus in as we wrap this series up on some very practical questions. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about conflict in friendships and conflict in marriage, conflict with people. We're going to talk about forgiveness again. It's going to be very helpful, very practical, I think enriching, mind-changing, heart-enlarging conversation. So don't miss next week as we wrap this series up, and uh, it'll be part four of Asking for a Friend.